no, being outside is great. I, I don't mind neighbors as well. And if you had crazier neighbors, that would be more fun for the show. <laughs> if, uh, you know, you, n- you never know. I had a crazy neighbor once that yelled at me for mowing my lawn on a Sunday at two o'clock in the afternoon. Unno- unbeknownst to me, it was Mother's Day. And um, my kids were playing on the, on the, on the, on the uh, swing set. And uh, we're recording this. This is, just makes it that much more real, by the way. We'll do the introductions here in a second. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joel, you can, you can put this on. You can put this on because it's, al- it's always fun, you know, when you hear two real people talking. So anyways, um, the lady came marching down my backyard. And, and granted, I, I had like three acres, three and a half acres of land. So it's not like we were like right on top of each other either. I'm mowing the lawn. The kids are on the spring shed. Uh, swing set. And uh, this lady comes down. And my, I see my wife chasing after her. She's like marching down the lawn. I'm like, what is going on? Like, this must be like some emergency or something. And uh, literally in the house next to me, I've never met this lady before for whatever reason, because I had some, I knew everyone else in the neighborhood, but I didn't know these people that were kind of like hidden to themselves. I felt like they were doing like weird seances and stuff at night, lighting candles outside and crazy stuff. Anywho, comes down, stands in front of the, in front of the mower. And I'm, I stop the mower. I'm like, is the house on fire? Like what's going on? And she just immediately starts dropping crazy F-bombs. Like, you got a lot of effing nerve. And I'm like, what's going on? And my wife's like, excuse me, my kids are here. She's like, I'll say whatever the F I want. And I'm like, what's going on? And she's like, and immediately this, this sense of calmness came over me. I don't know what it was. It was like, I went calm. I just went really calm. Somehow, like, in these, I, I get put in these crazy situations every now and then. This sense of calm comes over me. So, anywho. That's useful. <laughs> None of the days yeah. of Mr. Rogers anymore. Yeah, you know, it is, it is useful. And uh, she just starts going crazy. My wife's like, excuse me, my children are here. And I'm like, what? I'm like, what's wrong? What's going on? She's like, it is Mother's Day and you have to mow your lawn on Mother's Day. Here we go. See, I'm now I'm the one getting interrupted. And it's you. Yes, close the door. I'm recording a podcast. This is getting even more real now into my life. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Anyways, um, um, oh yes, she's like it's Mother's Day. I am, and I, all I could do was say, you know, I am so sorry. And I had my son. We both put the lawnmower in neutral. I turned it off and pushed it up and pushed it into my into my driveway, up a fairly steep hill in our backyard. Anyways, uh, that was one of my neighbors. So you never know. Yeah, yeah you never know. So, Happy Mother's Day to her. <laughs> <laughs> I, told, I told some other people that and they're like, I would have never acted that way. I would have been like kids earmuffs. <laughs> and, uh, anyhow, all right. Today, welcome everyone. So this is the, this is the preview to the show. Welcome everyone back to Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. It's rare that we have a true super nerd on the show. We have a super nerd on the show today, Sydney Burks, PhD. Um, I'm hoping you're not hungry and um, poor anymore. Um, so founder of building the future, well, founder of, um, boundless digital, which we'll get to in a moment, but more important, you did five years of college. It looks like so similar and your five years of college probably has no, no, it's probably not a reason as to why I did five, six years of college, but you did, is it five years? Is it five years? Well, anyways, 1998 to 2003 at MIT, in physics and mathematics, so way above my head. So why did you do five years there, or is it four and a half? No, you're right. It was five, and it wasn't the scenic route we always think about. It, it definitely took me a while to get out of there. 
I, uh, I went to MIT because I was always interested from the young age of, of building a time machine. And if you ever watched that show from the 90s, uh, Quantum Leap, there was a scientist on there, Sam Beckett. He went to MIT and built a time machine. So I said, all right, that's what I have to do. So I went to college, said, it's got to be MIT. That's the way to build my time machine. <laughs> and we're going to do it for real. And when I was a little kid, my sister used to, she used to talk about like the theory of going back in time. And I always just imagined it like, well, if you go faster than the speed of light, aren't you just going past light? Like, so I could see what happened back in time, but how are you actually going back in time? This gets real nerdy, way above my head, but is it actually possible to me? It's no, it's impossible. I don't care. Like me, like general, like common sense tells me, no, it's not impossible. You can't go past, you maybe travel past time and maybe see what happened or in the past, but you can't see the future or actually physically go back in time. You tell me how that's actually possible. I'll tell you what we understand right now. So we, I guess I'll say we scientists, we're still figuring out what time means. Now we don't understand any way right now where you can get into your DeLorean, go 88 miles an hour and then show up in the future. That's still off the, off the table, Mm -hmm. but we are discovering things that that makes sense when you look at things going backwards in time. For example, if you look at certain subatomic particles behave in a certain way, mm-hmm. the behavior looks as if they're going back in time. We also have the concept of things called time crystals, which are kind of like physical spatial crystals, such as salt's a type of crystal. Mm-hmm. And with normal crystals, they have this pattern that repeats throughout space. Scientists have recently discovered crystals, which they call time crystals, which are patterns which repeat throughout time. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that we're going to be traveling through time like on Star Trek anytime soon, but time is definitely one of those things that we're still uncovering what it means on the quantum mechanical level. And I think as we we discover more of that, we'll find more tricks that influence how time evolves. Mm. If that makes any sense. I'm just trying to see what subatomic particles that you're saying that look as if they're going back in time. Are we talking wormhole stuff? Are we talking particle accelerators? What are we talking here? Well, when I talk about subatomic, what I mean is when we're talking into the field of quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. So I I actually did my PhD in quantum optics. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole universe which behaves different from the universe we're we're used to, we're accustomed to. Mm -hmm. We're accustomed to things uh, such as Isaac Newton, apple falls, it hits you on the head, force Mm -hmm. equals MA. Things go around and, de- and define orbit. Things are well positioned at a given place in, in space. Yes. However, as you shrink things down to the quantum mechanical level, a new set of rules starts to emerge. And reality looks a lot different than what we're used to reality looking like. For example, you can take a quantum mechanical ball, a, a very small ball, and throw it at a wall. Yes. And then there's a chance that ball appears on the other side of the wall without having actually physically broken the wall or anything. Mm-hmm. So you might be thinking, okay, that's weird. Um, Space and time look differently on the quantum mechanical scale. So when you start involving that realm of physics, everything changes. It's nice. It becomes like 2001 Space Odyssey where we pop out somewhere weird or something. <laughs> um, not really. The, in your, your PhD bullet points, you have particle swarm optimization. It sounds very, it sounds very, really cool. It sounds like something, it sounds like application prioritization, except probably a lot deeper than that. What is particle swarm optimization? That was, uh, that's actually something interesting I was trying to do is to get my PhD done. So particle swarm optimization is basically a way to optimize some complex problem. And you basically take your answers and represent them as small entities. 
and each of these entities kind of behaves in a different way and they converge on their own to a, to a global optimum. So that's the type of optimization problem. And I was actually using this for my PhD because my PhD was in something called quantum optics. Mm -hmm. And what I was doing was building what we called a quantum memory, which is basically the hard drive for the computers of tomorrow. Now, when I, finished, when I started my PhD for finished it 10 years ago, we were talking about quantum computers, which were things we'd see in 50 years. And things have gone so quickly now, anyone can actually, listening to your podcast, they can go on the IBM website and run their own quantum computer algorithms today. So the field has just exploded. And back then I was building the, I was building a system to basically store information from light onto atoms mm. so that we could use that as a hard, a quantum mechanical hard drive. That's insane. And that's, that, that's where you start to, that's, you start to get the idea of maybe I should go into, um, I don't know, technology of some sort. In other words, <laughs> how'd you go from, look, I want to build a time machine to, I don't know, we're going to like work with Cisco Meraki. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. I'd, uh, I've always been a physicist and scientist at heart. And technology is one of those things that just kind of come easy, you know, from taking things apart, rebuilding them. My first computer was an 8088 back in, back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And it's always been a part of my lifestyle. And this, after first computer, so this this is a, so an eighty eighty eight. What was the first computer again? Yeah, it was an eighty eighty eight. That was a that was a that was a chip. The model of chip it was uh, that ran it. It was a very old thing that uh, you could program program in a language called Logo, where you had a little turtle you drew across the screen, writing things called Basic. It was a uh, it was a kind of legendary in the computer geek community. I think. Oh, I remember logo, write 90 and then yeah, exactly. <laughs> write 45 and make it make the line go across the screen like a thousand times and change colors because that's that was like what you did when you screwed around in fourth grade or whatever. Basically, uh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, logo was a, a what, could you do anything? So what could you do in logo that was that actually did something other than kind of like <laughs> graphics and stuff? You know, I was I was probably like you, just drawing circles and squares and everything and was happy with that. But you know, once you get it, you get the taste of it, then you start going deeper and deeper, and it just moves so quickly. It it takes over your whole life. When I was uh, I was a pre med for a little while in college. Everyone in my family was a doctor, and then I realized it was a dying breed, and there's no way I was going to go through that torture. The and my brain just my brain just sunk. I just went, oh, I know what it was. The I remember when the um, the human genome, like the human genome, was mapped out at like maybe like a half a percent or something, or maybe three, mm-hmm. let me give it 3% in college. And I remember our professor saying, you know, it's going to be forever. Like eventually someday we will have the entire human genome mapped out. And then fast forward one decade, like done due to, right. due to computer technology or whatever it was that we did to speed up the process. Do you, what did we actually do to speed up that process? Do you know? I think one of the biggest Accelerators was the uh, was the acceleration of computational technology. So now that we can actually compute things a lot faster, we can we can we can analyze genes much more quickly. We can store data much more efficiently, and that just didn't exist twenty years ago when they're trying to figure all this stuff out. So yeah. since computer technology has improved, the cost of doing these things has just fallen, yeah. and now we can we can do a lot more a lot more efficiently. Just yeah. as you've seen them do and uh, come up with the COVID vaccine in three days, based yeah. on the research they've done over twenty years. And modeling without actually having to micropipette and test things. They can actually do like a, 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 like a pharmaceutical testing modeling without actually doing the physical, the physical testing like we used to do with trying to find 
manufactured drugs, et cetera. Now we exactly can model, model the tests with data ahead of time and then and then test the actual ones that come up. Um, which is mind blowing also. Um the iron the other irony of this is that there's a bunch of kids in the background, which is cool. They're not my kids. Everyone listening to us is gonna think that whatever kids in the background are mine. We're just I'm just letting everyone know now that that's not, except for the one interruption I had at the beginning. I have no clue who's in my house right now, except that my son said, Hey, someone's here. Um <clears throat> Why? So technology, was it just that technology was like, Hey, this is a much easier way to pay the bills. Like how'd you end up in software development? Yeah. You know, honestly, that was, that was probably it back in 2005, 2006. I think some of my, my college mentors and heroes, they were some of my friends who were the really cool guys who could build websites and things. They would get jobs paying their bills just like that. So I said, okay, I want to do that. I, I, physics is cool and everything, but it doesn't really pay the bills. So so let's learn to do this stuff on the side. So that's what got me really into it. <laughs> it's kind of like me too. Mine, except mine was not really, mine was creative writing. So it was completely opposite, opposite brain. So I ended up leaving chemistry, biochem or chemistry major, right? And just saying, no, I'm just doing creative writing. And now here I am in technology. So, you know, similar thing, you know, creative writing can only pay so much. Um, so let's get to the meat of this show. And Again, I rem- my kids watched this movie called Diary of a Wimpy Kid, and there's a scene in one of the movies where the really cheesy parents are playing this game, I Love You Because, and you have, I guess, I don't know if it really manufactured, but build or, or working with software to make managing Meraki's easier for MSPs that need to maybe make changes across or security changes across, um, I don't know, thousands of devices, let's say, or at least make their life a lot easier. But I'm not a huge fan. I'm not always a huge fan of Cisco. Uh, I understand that they, I am a fan and I'm not a fan at the same time. And I'd rather play the, I hate you because Meraki, I hate you because. And (laughs) so honestly, you, you play first. So Meraki, I hate you because why? Meraki, I hate you because because you don't really give enough. <laughs> Meraki, I can hate you because you you don't really give enough visibility into what's going on under the, under the hood. Oh, okay, great, Meraki. Um, I hate you because um, let's see, you have a lot of manual steps and you are missing a ton of things. Yeah. Meraki, I hate you because you <laughs> oversimplify it and the experts feel like they don't have the tools that, that they need to really uh, dig under the weeds. Mm, nice. Um, let's see. What else did we have? Um, Meraki, I hate you because managing uniform changes is really just not that easy or possible. Meraki, I hate you because when there is a wish list item, it could take years for that to actually get addressed. Mm, nice. Um, Meraki, I hate you because I'm so tired of making all these changes that I leave a lot of holes in my security. Meraki, I, yep, that's about right. <laughs> Meraki, I hate you because if I want to delegate some work to one of my junior associates or to an external consultant firm, I have to take the risk of giving them full access to everything, which means they might break things. Oh, yes. Yes. So, Meraki, I hate you because I only have two levels of, I don't know, administrative access or one mm-hmm. level 
administrative access. Okay, you win. You win. Because <laughs> I know you're going to have many more examples and it's going to make me look stupid, right? And most of the examples that I just used are ones you, you fed to me anyways. So why do you exist? What are you going to do? So how do you make it so that we can love Meraki again? Where you're like, you're like the relationship therapist, right? (laughs) Exactly. That's what they call me. I want a divorce. I want a divorce from Rocky. Okay. I want a divorce. And you're saying, no, no, let's work it out. Let's work it out. You don't have to get it because it's going to cost you so much money. You're going to like lose half your possessions. You're going to lose all your, your, your children are going to be divided up. Your customers are going to leave you and they're just not going to put up with all your crap. And you know, it's like, like, you're here, like, like save my relationship. You're my therapist. Like, how are we going to save this relationship? And so that I can love Meraki again. I want to be, I want to love you again. I want to love Meraki. Again. <laughs> well, Meraki, they, they've actually heard your complaints and they, uh, they were going to keep the dog too, but they decided to try to work on things. And one thing, <laughs> and one, one thing they've done is they've actually decided to actually address some of these issues by opening everything up to program programmation via the APIs. So that's one of the nice places where Rocky has actually stepped forward. They said, okay, the future of network infrastructure is network automation. Mm -hmm. And the only way we can do this is by opening up the infrastructure so people can program it, customize it, and really build it exactly as they need to function. This is classic. You know, let's make something really complicated and maybe... I don't know, dumb it down. Let's sell it because we can stamp our name on it. You know, let's sell it because it's Cisco product, right? Of course. And then let's just get everyone else to fix our problems, which is great. And then they can make money off it too. And anyways, let's make life easier. So let's start tackling some of these crazy Meraki things. And first of all, who out there could be listening to this show right now that has Meraki stuff and, and like, what do they know? Like, let's just go down their crew. What, what's the number one things that they're banging their head against the wall on? The number one thing that bothers people with Meraki right now is making changes across many networks at once, or even if you're a managed service provider, an MSP, doing those changes across multiple organizations. So for example, if you, Meraki gives you a t- solution using templates, however, those are really, really rigid. You can't really customize things the way you need to. And what we've done is we've developed a layer on top of Meraki using the APIs so that if you want to standardize your networks, your organizations across hundreds, thousands of networks or hundreds of organizations, you can just do that in one place, push those changes out and be sure that everything is consistent the way you want it without having to manually click through things, which can take hours or days. Mm, mm. And what are some of the biggest problems that you've seen? Well, if they can't do it now, where are they, where are the biggest, what's the biggest kind of problems, I guess, that people are trying to, to solve from these changes other than just complete labor waste and inefficiency to managing mm-hmm. your business. But what about issues with your customers? I'll say there are two big ones. One of the big ones we hear all the time are managing firewall rules. So for example, if there's a, we have customers every single phone call, they say, okay, let's say I have a, I just discover a new command and control server somewhere on the internet and I need to block it for all my networks at once. How do we do that? And the answer is you click through a hundred different pages, you take a few hours and maybe you'll get it right. Maybe you'll miss something. And that, that just really frustrates customers to no end because it's a critical situation that creates a security fault and your whole business can be at stake if you let things like that slip. Mm. That has got to be very, very frustrating. You must have to have just like Meraki jockeys just literally making changes all day long, every day, all day. How often do we have to make changes? How often should we people, people be making changes? 
We think these things happen around at least a few times, several times a week for most network administrators we talk to. But if we're looking at MSPs who manage comp- networks for other companies, this <laughs> is a nonstop thing all day, every day. It can happen. It's got to kill scalability. Absolutely. It kills scalability and it also kills because you also can't easily delegate the work Mm -hmm. because if you let someone else do it and they break something, then you're screwed. You have two problems. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if you do it wrong. If you do it wrong, exactly. So that's actually the second place where we come in to play. We're releasing now with next week, actually a role-based access control solution. So that says, okay, let's say you're scaling your Meraki organization. You need to add more members to your team. You need to take on more responsibilities. You can delegate things so that they can only access the specific menus that you choose. And that way, there's actually absolutely no way they can break anything outside of their scope. So that's a work around Meraki's inability to provide multi-levels of administrative access. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're hearing people ask for this for the dashboard. And we've also had some requests coming in for the API. So one of the things on our roadmap is to create an API gateway, which also gives that same role-based access control to API endpoints so that you can create automations without completely automating your destruction of your network. Uh, okay, what else we got? Uh, so the another thing, the other problem that we're solving right now is often for MSPs who deploy new customers. Yep. Sometimes they have a golden configuration they like to reuse over and over and over again, and that takes quite a bit of time to, to deploy that, set it up, verify that it works. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're releasing a new automation deployment system. Basically, you upload your configurations through an Excel file. You repeat that one or more times for a given organization, and it just goes through the recipe and makes sure everything's exactly the way you need it. Okay. Keep going. Wait, there's right, so we've, oh yeah, there's totally more. One of the other problems we hear a lot is something called configuration drift. So what that means is let's say you have a big organization, tons of networks. If you're using Meraki templates, things are more or less consistent, but you have a lot of restrictions. Whereas if you try not to use those templates so you can have more flexibility, sometimes things change in ways you don't want them to change. That means someone might name something incorrectly. Someone might put the wrong configuration in or forget it. And over time, things just kind of get haywire. And what we've done is we've actually created a system using these basic templates, which let you audit your whole network to say, okay, are the names following the format that I want those to follow? For example, if I use my city underscore country underscore network name, does it follow the format? Local host is always a good thing to name things. Exactly. You can say, okay, which ones are violating that policy and just go fix them right away. Same thing for the configuration options. Let's say you want to block access to communication between all the clients on your network, all the wireless clients. Yeah. People can always forget those kinds of things and we let you just set up a really quick check to say, okay, are any of the networks not following my policy? And if not, let me know so I can go fix it. And that saves, that saves tons of time. That's actually some of our customers' favorite feature because they can see throughout all the clients they manage what's out of compliance, what's going haywire, and they can fix it really quickly. Mm. Give me an example of an industry that that might be helpful in, or that are there any particular, you know, standout industries where this is? I would I would say a lot of the industries where there's regulation. So if we look at things such as government, medical industries, we have a, a biomed client who who uses quite this quite a bit. Anything where there's a lot of regulation, you have to really make sure that the networks operate how you are legally obliged to make them operate. Right. This is where something can really come into play. Okay. What else we got? Okay, so we talked about the 
the conformity. We talked about the deployment across multiple organizations and networks at once. Oh yeah, we also just released, uh, we have a few tools to help migrate networks. Now, what I mean by this is that Meraki has this weird feature so that if you take a device and move it from one place to another, it loses its configuration completely, which is just a real pain. And when you have customers or when you're an MSP or something, you want to move a device to different places so you can split your organization or do backups or whatever, you have to spend all the time reconfiguring every one of your devices, which is just a nightmare. And we've actually released a tool which lets you clone organizations and move devices so you can migrate organizations from one place to another and save that configuration so that you don't have to do it over and over again by hand. Now, that's really useful for when you want to do things such as backing up an organization. You can do a snapshot to see what it was like at a given point in time. That's useful for when you have a big organization and you want to split into smaller ones. You can use this functionality to get those things done quite efficiently. Uh, what about this log? What about this log data and, and monitoring and, and remediating stuff there? Right. So another thing that we hear a lot about is it's quite painful for people to really parse through the logs and understand what's going on inside of Meraki. Mm-hmm. So one one solution that we're coming up we're coming out with in the next few months is a syslog as a service solution, and that really integrates the Meraki API so that you can understand the logs and the events that happen in your organization and your infrastructure. So for example, if a client triggers a firewall rule or firewall blockage, you yep. can see that in the logs. And then since it's connected through the Meraki API, you can actually build your own workflow automations. So let's say you get a log event of a device uplink going down. You could set up an automation to say, okay, when the uplink goes down, fail over to the secondary uplink so that you can maintain connectivity. Or if something goes down for five minutes and comes back up, send us an alert or do the things that might help remediate that situation so someone doesn't even have to look at it. What other people are doing this stuff? Do you think companies have their own software dev teams inside to fix crap like this? A lot, most companies, I think, try. The thing about network and network administration is that it, it's come from a place where it was really manual historically. Yep. This whole idea of automating things is really new to the field. And it's not necessarily in everyone's skill set. People are consider themselves network engineers, not necessarily programmers. Yep. And a lot of people just don't even want to spend time, waste time programming because it's a whole career on its own. It's, it's something you have to really spend a lot of time to get right. It might not and, have- and just the thought of like hiring someone to develop software and everything seems, it just doesn't seem realistic in many cases. It's, it's a nightmare. You have to think about so many things about the software development process, hosting, security, making sure you actually get it right. And as, a, as someone who does it, it's something you don't want to be doing if you don't have to do. I'll just say that straight, straight out. And yeah, to answer your question, some companies do take that approach. They say, okay, let's really build out things to to try to smooth over some of these network administration pains. But what we're doing is we're just saying, okay, we've thought through some of these things. We've talked to a lot of Meraki users. We've identified much of the pain points and now you don't have to waste time building this yourself. It's been tested, proven, and you can just take it out of the box and use it and get your job done. What's your relationship like with uh, Cisco? Because I know, you know, it's always interesting when you're working with a big company like that, uh, you know, whether it be Cisco, whether it be Microsoft, and a lot of times they're very thankful. I mean, I know a lot of my, Microsoft partners that are whether they're direct routing partners or whatever it is, Microsoft's actually sending them large enterprise clients because it's just easier for them and it's not in their wheelhouse to fix certain issues like this. What's it like working with Cisco? That's actually something we've been seeing happen a lot recently. 
uh, one of our one of my co-founders, my, my co-founder is actually an ex Cisco Meraki employee. Mm-hmm. He was one of the initial salespeople of Cisco Meraki here in Europe. Mm-hmm. And since we've established a technical partnership with them, we've been actually coming up with many of our features based on the issue they've had with their customers. So they would come to us and tell us, okay, we've got some customers that are having this issue. Is there anything you guys can do about it? And we provide a solution which addresses it. Now, I'm assuming a lot of this, this MSP model in general, it's very uh, US-based model. I don't know what you're, I always, I mean, you're in, you're in France. So mm-hmm. what's the, what's the model like in the rest of the world? You know, I'm assuming this, obviously this software is going to be very beneficial to MSPs in the United States because it's just how we do business over here. There's a lot of outsourced IT. There's a lot of outsourced IT for small to medium sized business. What's it like in the rest of the world? This is a real, it just seems like almost bootstrap. The rest of the world seems almost like, Hey, look, we just make it happen in the United States. It seems very, how do I say, I don't know, systematic or done a certain way, even if it's the wrong way. That's a really interesting question. I wouldn't even say it's the wrong way. What we've noticed, what I've noticed from speaking to users and customers all over the world mm-hmm. is the United States is definitely in advance. It's more mature by light years in a lot of things. And I'd really? say that just the mindset, the mentality. Mm. People, I've actually talked to some Iraqi users who have tried this on their own and they have just gone over the edge with the stuff you can do around Meraki automation. And it's, it's in the culture to say, okay, how can we take something that's broken and make it better? And that's one of the things I really like about working with customers customers and companies in the United States because this is just part of our DNA. This is who we are. You look at some place like Europe, there's a lot of hesitation to go into new things, to try things which we don't quite understand yet. They can easily take two years just to decide to really give it a shot. To and me, if you it feels like the cloud is underdeveloped in Europe. Is that true or no? It just doesn't, definitely, seem, like a lot of, it doesn't seem like there's this more kind of open marketplace as much as there is. I feel like there's a lot of kind of server-based stuff still. Yeah, at least from a telecom perspective, it's just interesting because there's like a telecom guy on every street corner in the United States selling some sort of cloud product, even if they're like hosting it out of their garage and you don't know that and they call it a data center, which is, I mean, I know it, but I'm just, you know, what's the cloud environment like where you're at? No, that, that, yeah, that's interesting too. It's finally starting to come into, come into its own after a lot of, uh, a lot of resistance. And I think the resistance not, comes not only from the security aspect, because there is a belief that if it's not in my country or in my, in my place, then it's not secure. Yeah. But I think there's also, it's driven by a lot of anti-American sentiment. So mm. if, it's, if it's American, it's bad and we don't want it. <laughs> why? <laughs> who, and who started that problem? <laughs> why is it bad? Why is it, what's up with the hatred for America? I hate America, but uh, can I get a ticket to come move there? Um, what is it? It's, it's America, a lot of that. I, I want to go to MIT. Um, <laughs> what's, what's the deal? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of hypocrisy around that. And it's, I think it comes from a lot of places. It comes from, for example, we export, we Americans, we export a lot of our culture. Some of the biggest companies in the world are American. Mm. A lot of, there are not any like that, not many like that in Europe. What's the so, culture hatred? What, what aspects? I just want to know, like what aspects of American culture are, are, are hated? Well, off the top of my head, Amazon. I mean, Amazon is a really bad word here. Wow, really? Yeah, I mean... Is it just like a monopoly I, or what? Just like a complete takeover or what? No, it's not even a monopoly. It's just uh, the idea of buying books online and not supporting the local bookseller is, is bad. 
uh, <laughs> big company. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. You're a bad person. Go back to, come on, man. That's like You've Got Mail, the movie. Come on, dude. We, we, we banged that one out years ago, okay? Yeah. Sorry. Bookstores are done. <laughs> okay, no, but I like, you know, anyways, keep going. Okay, so yeah, books. Weird. Okay. Keep going. Makes sense. Makes sense. I was, yeah, I was reading or just hate, about... Um, let's hate on America a little bit more. Anyways, what else do we hate? Well, books for one thing, the cloud, the cloud is American and, you know, uh, all the cloud operators, they're going to steal our business. So we can't use them. Mm -hmm. Um, Deliveries. So if we look at things such as uh, Amazon deliveries, and I keep saying Amazon again, but they've been changing, bringing so many opportunities. If we've seen through COVID, the whole idea of having things delivered to your house by a big player can be bad. It's better to go to the store and pick it up because, because you're more faithful to the to the local it's called the amazon effect we even have that here in america like even regular business owners like regular distributors logistics companies etc they call it the amazon effect amazon comes into town they hire all they just pay all they just offer to pay everyone more money and the company loses all their employees almost overnight and but it forces them to go to automation and robotics and stuff like that to replace right employees. but okay right Dude, the walmart effect too we were hating on walmart years ago too because they came in and put the local uh hardware store out of business but yeah it's inevitable yeah and anytime we talk about anything around automation things that might even remotely put jobs at risk there's a, there's a full put stop on the brakes here. Mm. Mm. What about other countries that just have more kind of monarchy style, non-democratic process where you've got more of a, like you got orange over there. That's like a big, mm-hmm. massive company. Like in the United States, we have tons of providers, tons, just so many. It's like, it go, goes, the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, I'm just curious how that, you know, is in maybe France. Like, do you guys have tons of ISPs or do you pretty much just have like one or two ISPs or is that kind of open market and you've got all this competition there? From that standpoint in the United States, we're very competitive. Yeah, we have about three now. So it used to be three? one who was... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, now I can hate on you guys. Like, oh, look at this. You're like monopolizing the ISP. Anyways, but go ahead. Yeah. No, there used to be France Telecom back in the day and then a few other ones, uh, a few other ones branched out. So now we have about three big ones. Mm-hmm. But, it's it's just as everything. It's it's a it seems like a collaborative thing. They all set the prices to where they want it to be. They give you the same crappy service. Uh, you get what you have. That's the same world. That's the same around the world. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's uh, the the battle of mediocrity. I'm I'm better because I suck less. The, <laughs> right. It's uh, what's this deal? So, anyways, let's get back to something that might be even kind of nerdier. You were going to build a warp drive. Did you <laughs> right. warp drive? What's up with the warp drive? What what were we doing there? So I was I'm a I'm a huge Star Trek fan, mm-hmm. and in college I had the opportunity to come to Europe and Belgium and study with this guy who built a warp drive. Now he came up with a theoretical model for the warp drive, so I don't mean he actually put one together, oh. but he he came up with the math to say, okay, here's how you would build a warp drive in theory. And just to, just to explain what a warp drive is, so in Star Trek, that's how the Starship Enterprise goes from star to star. They basically full space around the ship. Yep. And instead of moving through space faster than the speed of light, they basically bring space to, to them. Kind of, like, kind of crazy. Aren't, aren't there actual physical models of that in physics? Though? Hasn't that been like observed, kind of like something going into a wormhole and showing up on the other side or completely disappearing in the universe somehow? So we haven't seen it yet. We haven't observed it in the, in the research, but there are theoretical models which say, okay, 
here's if something did go through a black hole or a wormhole and come out, here's what we would see. Mm. And there are people who have also said, okay, if we were to build a warp drive to change space so that we could get from one place to another faster than the speed of light, here's how it here's how it could look. Now the problem is when they start doing the math and showing how it could look, it turns out that in order to do that, we need to do things that are really impossible right now, such as take enough mass to make up the entire universe and squeeze it into a ball the size of a peanut, which we can't really do very easily. But um, when we can do that, then we can probably have warp drives. Mm-hmm. So explain. So you were going to build one. You had a theoretical model, and I'm assuming that that's in the theoretical model. Yeah, that was in the theoretical model. So I, I did an internship to learn the theory of general relativity so that I could understand how we could build warp drives. And we didn't, we didn't, I didn't actually build a warp drive, but it was, it was definitely a passionate thing for, for quite a while. So take mass, form it into the size of a peanut. What, wouldn't we just use where that already exists, you're saying? Like, so black holes somehow? You got to speak, again, you're speaking to a very lay man here. So, we're, we're, <laughs> you know, people are going to be laughing at me now. So, you know, dumb this down for me. That is true for black holes. You do have a lot of mass in a very small space. The second, there, there are a few more details. The other details, you have to actually set that mass up in a certain configuration. So you can't just ball it into a ball and say, okay, now I have a warp drive. You have to actually shape it in the right shape. And then you have to do things with it so that it could warp the space in the way you want it to. Basically, that means it's just really, 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 really complicated to do. And in theory, if we, could, if we were God and we could do everything with the universe, we could make it happen. Mm. But right now, we still have a long way to go. I like that you said that. Makes sense. <laughs> so it might be happening already, but there's no way any human beings doing it. You know that well. That's a, that's a question. The question is, uh, have some other. Now I'm getting off. I'm getting into a different topic. Are there some other advanced species which might have discovered ways of manipulating space in ways that we just haven't come up with? And that's when it gets really interesting because, as long as things are not really prohibit, prohibited or forbidden by the laws of physics, there mm. could be some scenario in which they they're accomplished in some galaxy in some society somewhere. Does space have an ending? And you can't use a Star Trek analogy here. <laughs> <laughs> I think a good. Well, I did I'm gonna, I'm, back in 1998 on this episode with the board mm-hmm. or whatever. But anyways, I'll use a different analogy. It's like asking, does a does a basketball have an ending? Yeah. If you if you're an if you're an ant on, on, on if you're an ant on the basketball, where does it end? Now for the ant, it probably never ends. For you, the human dribbling it, of course it ends. It ends at the surface. Yeah. We think the space is probably something like that too. And we're just the ants. And for us, it looks like it might never end. It might even go in circles. Whereas if there's some kind of, I'm going to say, being or conscious or whatever outside of our space, hmm. it could easily see things that we just don't see. And to it, it looks like space is just a tiny little yeah. I used looking, to looking glass. The tuna fish sandwich analogy, there's actually space between the tuna fish and the sandwich. You just can't see it because it's so small. Mm-hmm. And then there's a tray of tuna fish sandwiches and some guy walking around with it. And we're inside that space in one of those sandwiches. Um, I don't know why I thought of that one a long time ago. Why tuna fish? I must have been hungry that day. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Please talk to me about the Meraki solve, though. We, what we can do is make life easier right now. So you're wasting less time you know, managing devices and kind of going through the manual operations. There's days where I have motivation problems on days when you, work, when you kind of work for yourself. Maybe you know this. Some days you wake up and you're like, what am I going to do today? Whereas when you have a job, managing Meraki firewalls, you know what you're doing for the day. You just wake up and you're going to do that every day. And how can we make that go away so that people can have problems and wake up and be like, what the hell do I do today? (laughs) 
you know, our, what, that's our, really what you're trying to do here, I'm assuming, to a certain degree. So what's the big deal? Yeah, our, our vision of this is that computer networking is, it's a really complex field and it's only getting exponentially more complex, complex as we go forward. And we really believe that at some point in the near future, it's going to get so complex that humans just can't even do it because it's, there's too much to keep in your mind. And the only answer that we see to that is an automation, a future based on automation. So you have a network which is automated, it detects faults, it fixes itself, and it almost manages itself. And our, our mission is to bring about that future. Now, we're starting with Meraki, and we hope to branch out towards other aspects of this as we go forward. But for Meraki, we're saying, okay, we're taking the solution for MSPs where, or people who manage many networks, many organizations. We help you make sure things stay consistent. We help you make changes across large numbers of networks at once so you can save time. You reduce errors, and that way things break less often because you don't have that human error behind it. That's, the, that's what we've got in place. Mm, mm. Sydney Burks, everyone, if you want to make your Meraki life not so painful, reach out to Sydney, find him on LinkedIn, um, Boundless Digital, type in Sydney, S-I-D-N-E-Y, Burks, B-U-R-K-S, Boundless Digital LinkedIn, you'll find him. Where else can they find you? Give me, give me some more. How can people reach out to you? Yeah, so you can check out our website, www.boundlessdigital.com. And we're also on the Meraki store. So if you're a Meraki customer, Meraki user, you can search on the Meraki marketplace and you'll see that we have about seven different applications there. You can just reach out and also hit us up at contact at boundlessdigital.com. Sir, thank you for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Same here. Thank you too.